as we come to God's Word. Let's pray and ask for His help to understand and apply it. Father, these are ancient words, and yet these are your living words to us today. Father, we pray that you will help us to be humble before that word, to accept the challenge that it brings, but also the comfort and assurance and reassurance that there is in it. Lord, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, knowing that we desperately need that help because our thinking is so often flawed and skewed, but yours is perfect. And so we, help, we ask that you will help us to see your perfect wisdom for Jesus' sake. Amen. What is your ambition in life? Is it to get more qualifications, to have a family, to earn as much as you can, to own a bigger house, to live to see your grandchildren, or to have a long and healthy retirement, to see your children succeed and make something of their lives? Some of us maybe just want to get through each day as best we can. Or perhaps we're past the stage of having ambitions because we've seen lots of our hopes and expectations come to nothing. But the fact of the matter is that for all of us there are things which drive us. There are things that we hope for in life. And if we doubt that, then we only have to ask ourselves, what is the worst thing that could happen to me? Would my life fall apart if I failed that exam, or if I lost my job, or I had to move house, or someone close to me died? Years ago, many people's ambitions would have been very closely tied up with the harvest. They'd have been hoping for enough from their land to be able to feed their family and perhaps provide some additional income. They didn't have the luxury that we do of being able to assume that no matter what the weather, the supermarket shelves are still going to have more than we need. And yet I'm not sure that the underlying desires of human beings have changed much over the centuries. At root, what most of us want is comfort and security. We don't really want to make life any harder for ourselves than it has to be. And the only reason sometimes that we endure certain hardships is because we hope for something better in the long run. We work hard to earn enough to be able to change our car or go on that nice holiday or we put up with that annoying relative because we hope she might leave us something in her will. Certainly comfort and security seem high on the agenda of the man who comes to Jesus in this passage that we're looking at from Luke's Gospel this morning. And the request that he makes enables Jesus to launch into teaching about what it is that ultimately matters and how it is that we shouldn't confine our ambitions simply to this life and the comfort and security that we can gain here. Through these verses we're going to see the wrong view to take of life in this world and what we should expect from it and then we'll move on to see the right view. Let's start off with the wrong view. And in fact, in these verses, we see that there are two things that Jesus is highlighting about the wrong view of life. And the first is that it is wrong to think that money is all that matters. It is wrong to think that money is all that matters. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that money doesn't matter. We can't survive without it. 
And there's no doubt that at times it can make life easier. But the problem that Jesus is getting at here is the problem of thinking that money matters more than anything else. The man who comes to Jesus in verse 13 is more concerned about money than anything else. That's why he says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The one thing that he wants more than anything else is money. Here he is face to face with Jesus. And the only thing in his mind is money. Now the likely situation is that this man and his brother had probably been left the family's land. But the brother obviously wanted to hold on to the land and keep it in the family name. While this man wanted to sell it and get his share. And it wouldn't have been unusual when a problem like this arose for God-fearing Jews to take the problem to a local rabbi. But Jesus doesn't want that rule. In verse 14 when he says, man who made me a judge or an arbiter between you? He's essentially asking the man, why do you think I have authority in this matter? And even more than that, it always seems to be as if he's saying, why do you think I'd want to get into dealing with this? This isn't the kind of thing that I've come to do. And Jesus then goes on to use this man almost as an example to warn the crowd around him. Because in verse 15 we read that he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus is saying, don't fall into the trap that this man has fallen into, thinking that money and what you possess is the most important thing. Life isn't just about what we own. Money may be very useful to us, it may even be essential to keeping body and soul together, but it's not what defines us. And it shouldn't be what gives us our ultimate security. It doesn't matter more than anything else. You see, it's very unlikely that this man was destitute. It wasn't really that he needed his share of the inheritance in order to survive. But it just made life a lot more comfortable for him if he could have it now. And Jesus is trying to warn against the greed that makes us think that money and what we have matters more than anything else. But there's a second wrong view of life that we see in this passage. And that is that it's wrong to think that this life is all that counts. It's wrong to think that this life is all that counts. And to show the foolishness of thinking like that, Jesus tells a story. And we've read it earlier on, but it's probably one we were already familiar with. But let's just remind ourselves of the key facts. The story is about a rich farmer who is about to get richer. Because in verse 16, we read that his ground produced a good crop. In fact, it was so good that he didn't have room to store it all. And so he finds himself with a bit of a dilemma. In verse 17, we hear him mulling over in his mind what to do. He thinks to himself, what am I going to do because I have nowhere to store my crops? But he's not stuck for an answer for too long. He concludes that he needs to do a massive overhaul of his premises. And so he decides in verse 18 to pull down his barns and build bigger ones so they can store all his grain and his goods. And once that's done, he intends to sit back and enjoy himself. At last he will have enough not to have to worry about the future. And once the work's completed, he can imagine himself sitting down and saying, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry, as the end of verse 19 says. Finally he will have arrived, he will have all he's ever desired. And that's because his sole focus is on life in this world. That's what he's interested in. 
He wants to have the best time possible in this life. Now there might have been some people who were listening to Jesus who would have been thinking, well, wasn't this guy the lucky one? Imagine never having to work again. He certainly knew what he was on about. But Jesus is quick to point out that God's assessment of this man is very different. It's quite shocking really, isn't it? Because how is it that God sums up this man in verse 20? He calls him a fool. It's not generally what people think about those with money, is it? More often than not, the really rich are held in some kind of awe. And certainly in Jesus' context, wealth would have been seen as a sign of God's blessing. So it would have been a surprise for the crowd to hear this man described as a fool. But Jesus goes on to explain why he was a fool. God's word to this man, who's just about to sit back, relax, enjoy the rest of his life, is that life's over. He says, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. He's going to die that night. He's not going to have any time to enjoy the security that he's worked so hard to build up. And there's a kind of double blow at the end of verse 20, because it ends with the question, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself. It's going to be someone who hasn't had to do the hard work of knocking down the barns and building bigger ones. They'll just stroll in and enjoy all that this man has managed to accumulate. He's worked his socks off for someone else to get the benefits. And we don't even know if he has a family of his own or if it's just going to be some far out relation. Now, of course, the problem with this man isn't that he tried to plan for the future. It's that he got his time perspective wrong. He thought that this life was all that there was, and that it was all that counted. And so he invested all his time and energy into trying to get to the stage where this life would give him what he wanted. And because of that, he ignored God, and he ignored those in need around him. There's no mention of his money being used for anyone other than himself. And that's reinforced by Jesus in verse 21 when he says, This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. This man wasn't bothered about the poverty on his doorstep. When his harvest was unexpectedly good, he didn't think, How can I use some of this extra wealth to help others? He didn't think to himself, I actually am rich already. I have, I have plenty already. What can I do with this surplus? All he thought was about how he could make his life even better. Well, it's maybe easy as we read something like this to think of maybe people we know or those we read about in glossy magazines who are really rich and are obviously living solely for this world. But I'm not sure that Jesus is really targeting the mega-rich after all, most of those listening to him wouldn't have been particularly well off. I think what he's getting at here is that it's possible to be relatively poor and still think that money is all that matters or that this life is all that counts. We may think that some footballers or their wives have more money than sense, but do we never wish that we just had a little bit of their spare change? What is the response that Jesus expects in the light of this story? Does he want us to spend all we have because we don't know how long we'll have to enjoy it? I don't think that's the intended application. 
And it's not that Jesus doesn't want us to have money, or even that he doesn't want us to plan for the future. But he wants, what he wants is for us to be rich towards God. Now, at the end of verse 21, he doesn't say exactly how we can be rich towards God. But it must be the opposite of storing up things for ourselves. The problem with the rich fool was that he gave no thought to others. As long as he was well provided for, that everyone else could just fend for themselves. They weren't his problem. You see, he wasn't willing to trust his wealth to God. That seems to be at the core of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. This man felt that he had to guarantee his future and his security. He wasn't prepared to be generous towards God and allow God to keep providing for him, both in this world and the next. Well, that's all very well, you may say. But surely there's so much need in this world that I can't make a difference to it. Surely it doesn't matter whether I give away 50, 500 or 5,000 pounds a year. It's all just a drop in the ocean. But God is more concerned about what underlies our giving. He has generously given us everything that we have. Well, I know we may think that we have gained it by our hard work, but he's the one who's given us the strength and ability to do our job. And what he wants us to do is to get a right view of life. And that's what we want to look at for our remaining time. The right view is brought out in verses 22 to 34 that we're not going to look at in as much detail. But they do help to explain what Jesus is trying to say, I think, in the story of the rich fool. Again, there are two things he says about the right view in contrast to the wrong view. So while it's wrong to think that money is all that matters or that this life is all that counts, the right view is to see, first off, that worry is pointless. We need to realise that worry is pointless. Often we're scared to give money away because we're worried about what we will have left to live on. And yet, we're probably quite far from the position of many in Jesus' day because generally they'd have been paid on a daily basis. And so they were living a kind of hand-to-mouth existence. So it might be more understandable if they were reluctant to give much to God because they were worried about literally where the next meal was coming from. And yet Jesus points out the futility of worry. Verse 23, he says that life is about more than food and clothes. They help to sustain life, obviously, but there's more to our existence than simply what we will eat and what we will wear. Whether we recognize it or not, there is a spiritual dimension to our lives, which is ultimately much more important than food and clothes. As well as that, verse 24 tells us that if God can look after the birds and if he can clothe the grass of the field, then he can surely feed and clothe us because we're more valuable to him than anything else that he has made. And besides, worrying doesn't change anything. As verse 25 points out, we can't add a single hour to our lives by worrying. I'd even argue that we can take time away by worrying ourselves to death over certain things. Worrying about what's going to happen won't stop it happening. And worrying about something that might never happen, you might say it's just a waste of nervous energy. But equally, you might say, well, that's all easier said than done. If you're up to your eyes in debt, and interest rates are going up, when the bills are mounting, and you don't want to have your children have less than others, and your job isn't looking very secure, 
you're trying to live on a pension, why do you not worry? And isn't it irresponsible to give money away if you can't manage to stay in the black until the end of the month? Well, I think this passage is the answer, at least in part, to those questions. Because Jesus realises that something bigger than our worry must consume our minds. Part of our worry is because we think that life here is all that there is. And that we have to get as much out of it as we can. We have to own as much as we can. We need to have as many great experiences as we can. We need to be able to entertain ourselves. We need to be able to get as much pleasure now as possible. But Jesus here says that what we need is for something bigger to take over our lives. We need to fix our eyes on God and on his kingdom. That's why he says in verse 31, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. What we need to keep telling ourselves is the second aspect to this right view of life. And that is that we need to realize that God's kingdom is what really counts. We need to realize that God's kingdom is what really counts. God wants us to see this world for what it is, not simply an end in itself, but actually a prelude to God's perfect kingdom. Consistently in his teaching, Jesus stresses the new and perfect world which is to come. And that is where our focus should be. And that's where we should be storing up treasure. We should be using the gifts that God has given us. We should be using the money that we have in order to make sure that there are more people in that kingdom with us. And if that's where our focus is, then we'll find that we have enough in this life. We may not become rich. We may have less than people who aren't Christians. But we won't be worried about that. Because we know that we're investing for something which will last forever. Verse 34 is very telling. And the logic is perhaps surprising. Because Jesus says there, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We might have expected him to say, where your heart is, there your treasure is. The things that you care most about, you will give your time and money to. But actually, if you think about the, the logic that Jesus is using, it does make sense. If you pump most of your money into your house, then that will be the thing that you think most about. If you pour it into holidays, then that will be what you spend most of your time planning and looking forward to. If you spend most of your money on what you wear, then you'd be constantly on the lookout for something new. And so it goes on. The things that we put our money into are the things that actually then drive our affections, if you like. We only give God what we can spare. How much will we care about our church or about God's work in the world? Jesus says that what we put our money into will affect our hearts. Now he's not saying that we can buy our way into heaven. But I doubt if many of us could really be accused of trying to do that, could we? Instead he's saying, if this is what you're putting your money into, if this is what you're investing in, this is what you'll be most excited about, most interested in, praying most for, the thing that you're devoting your money to. Now this morning's sermon is not intended as an appeal for money. I don't know anything about your finances. 
as a congregation. In fact, when I chose to preach on this passage, I thought, why have I chosen this one? I think he's just banging on about money. But <clears throat> I do want to appeal for us to, at least to some extent, try to get the right view on this life, which I think Jesus is getting at here. And we need to recognize that how we treat our money is one way that we can engage where our hearts truly lie. It's not the only one, but it does suggest something about what we value most and what we think about this life and what it's all about. And perhaps we need to ask ourselves whether we've fallen into the trap of so many of thinking that money and what we have is all that really matters or that this life is all that counts. If you think about it, the, the advertising all around us bombards us with, this is what you need for now. We're never being told about what we need for the future, for an eternal future. It's all about now, and how much we can get now, what we can have now. That's what our world thinks is most important, the experiences of now. But actually, God says there's a much bigger future to come. And it's going to go on forever. All we buy in this life, all we experience in this life, will not last. But God's saying, there is a future that will last. And it's one that you can invest in right now. The last few years have been challenging ones economically for many people. And it doesn't look like things are getting any better anytime soon. And perhaps that's made those of us who call ourselves Christians less ready to invest in heaven. I mean, maybe we're even less to spare for, for God and for his work. But how we feel to recognize that he has given us everything that we have. Maybe we need to look again at our priorities to ensure that we're not like the rich fool of Jesus' story who lived only for this world and found out too late that he'd made the worst investment of his life. Or maybe we haven't even begun to store up any treasure in heaven because we're still living only for this world. How we've seen this morning as we've looked at God's word together that that's a very dangerous position to be in because one day all that we have in this world will be taken from us. And on that day all that will matter is how we've treated the living God. And if we've lived our lives simply for ourselves, and what this world can give us, then we will be the losers in the end. But I trust that will not be us. That instead, at whatever point God says, tonight you're going to die, that that will not be a disaster because we're going to a future that we've already been investing in, that we've been already looking forward to. Because our desire is to be with God forever and to have lots of other people with us in that wonderful new world that God is preparing for us. And that's what he gives us the opportunity to do as we invest even now in the work of God's kingdom. And it doesn't matter whether you've got a lot or a little. We can all do that to whatever degree. And that's the challenge of this story to us today. Not to think that this world... This life, all we have is all that counts, but actually there is a greater kingdom to come. And Jesus calls us to seek first 
that kingdom. And everything else will fall into place. Not that it will be perfect, not that we'll have as much as we could ever hope for, but that actually we will have a great hope for the future. A future that we're investing in now. Let's pray together. Father, these words are challenging to us if we're honest, because we're also affected by this world and its values. And we live in this world, and, and there are things we need, and there are things that it's not wrong for us to have, experiences it's not wrong for us to have. But Lord, we just pray that you will help us increasingly to have those right priorities that, that show that we're not just about this world, but actually we believe in a, a life to come. And we are seeking to invest in that as we give to your work, as we give to those in need, as we care in the way that you care about this world and those who don't yet know you. Lord, we pray that uh, you'll help us not simply to ignore what we've been thinking about this morning, um, but that you help us to think seriously about what this means for us. Not for anything other than your glory's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.